welcome to the Frontside Podcast, the place where we talk about user interfaces and everything that you need to know to build them right. My name is Charles Lowell, a developer at the Frontside. It's been a really, really long time since we've gotten to talk to everybody. Um, we've been heads down, um, working on projects, working on some products, working on a lot of different things that haven't given us the time to do much podcasting. However, one of the things that we've been doing lately uh, is converting all of our projects over to using monorepos. And so we've been very interested in the tooling that comes with managing you know, more complex code bases that might contain a single application or contain a single package. And so we have been evaluating lately these different tools. And one of them that came to the fore was Rush.js. So today on the, the, the topic of this tool in particular, but I think also in just in terms of managing larger and complex code bases, we have Pete Gonzalez on the podcast to talk with us. Hey, Pete. Hi. And today also we're going to be talking with Shane Wilson, who is the author of Repackages, and a trusted voice uh, here at Frontside, when it, certainly when it comes to build tools. Hey, Shane. Hey. So yeah, so why don't we just dive right into it and talk about, you know, what was the particular set of circumstances, the particular set of problems that gave rise to Rush? What is it and what is it for? Sure. That's a good way to think about it. It's very much characterized by its beginnings. So it started... I want to say around 2015, when I was working uh, on Microsoft SharePoint, and we basically, I won't go into too much detail, but we had a whole bunch of legacy C-sharp server code, and the business decided they wanted to move it into the browser as client code. So lots of teams with this huge code base just started rewriting C-sharp code as TypeScript. And the model, at the time at least, was you have NPM packages that, you're, that are your units of components, and then each NPM package goes in its own Git repo. So we just had a bunch of developers who had previously actually been working in a monorepo mono go and start creating repo after repo, and then publishing packages and sharing them with each other. And we ran into a lot of problems with that, which today people kind of understand the value of monorepos for TypeScript and Node.js projects. But at the time, there was a lot of uh, assumption that, well, all the NPM packages that you use off the internet, they're all kind of developed that way. But we ran into problems where somebody would make a change and then somebody downstream would get broken or things wouldn't upgrade. And we eventually realized that we needed to bring the projects together, at least for the team that I was working on. And at the time, there wasn't any Yarn or uh, Lerna, these projects that are people are familiar with today, we really didn't have any options. In fact, NPM itself was like a new thing that was, you know, displacing Bower. So a lot of stuff that we take for granted today in the uh, Node.js community at that time, uh, at least within the group that I was working in, nobody had been very familiar with it. So we, we basically started with just a small tool that would let you cross-link project folders together, and then it would work out the uh, which project needs to be built first. So you build your libraries, then you build the application. And so it was a basic build orchestrator. And then out of that, basically, people started coming together into one repo. And then we encountered various other problems, such as publishing workflows and stuff like that. And so Rush sort of came out of those beginnings. But one thing that makes it a little different from the other tools that have come along is that it was done at a larger company. A lot of people you know, if you're a very prolific coder, you might make a thousand files or something and split them out into packages and then have something build them. But at the end of the day, it's still you or maybe you and 10 other people that work on your code. So you can be fairly flexible and the code tends to be fairly well behaved because everybody understands it. Mm -hmm. Whereas what happened on the project I was working on, it was more like you have like 50 people and then 100 people and then 150 people all working in this big common space and you encounter a set of problems that really impact your ability to scale up. Uh, and that's the direction that Rush has sort of taken. Like as the other solutions came along, we were kind of like, well, maybe we should, you know, stop using it and switch to something else. But we decided to make it more into a tool that focuses on those problems of large code bases and large teams. Yeah, maybe you could talk about uh, in specific some of those those problems. 
Yeah, so uh, some of them are technical problems. Like you just have a lot of code and the builds take a long time. So you need like parallel builds and incremental builds. Uh, and lately we've been talking about multi-phase builds. Just to break some of those down, parallel just means that uh, you start up multiple Node.js processes that build stuff simultaneously. But there's also been work recently on sharding. So you can uh, distribute the builds across multiple VMs rather than just having it run on one VM. Like for uh, incremental builds with Node.js, there's a problem that every time you run a command in a given folder to compile a project, you have to spin up Node.js and then eval a bunch of tool chain scripts. So for example, Rush's incremental build logic does all of the analysis from the build orchestrator. So the Node.js process that's already running for Rush can determine whether a folder needs to be built or not. And even if that saves you maybe one second of time versus if you had gone and run the tool chain on that particular folder, if you have like, you know, 200 projects, that could be 200 seconds of time that you save. But there's also human aspects of it as well. For example, uh, you have people of different skill levels coming in and working on the code. So there's, you know, you need people who maybe are just coming to that mono repo for the first time to fix a bug and then we'll go on somewhere else. You need it to be a good experience for them to learn how the tooling works. And it shouldn't be like a bunch of tribal knowledge that they need to learn how to actually do a turnaround, a pull request. Mm. Uh, there can be political issues. So there's like the bad team that doesn't have as good quality bar and keeps checking things in that make flaky tests or problems that like break the build for other people. So the other teams start instituting stricter policies, right? Like stricter ESLint rules, stricter code review, sign-offs and stuff like that. But then it creates a separate problem where now people are complaining that the ecosystem is too bureaucratic, right? Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> so this led eventually into Rush Stack, which is a more recent thing that we've been doing where we take the idea is Rush itself as a build orchestrator that doesn't really make a lot of assumptions about what your tool chain is. And then the idea behind Rush Stack was to start bringing in other pieces of the toolkit and making saying, well, if you want to work more the way that we work, you know, you can start using these other pieces of Rush Stack like API Extractor and uh, the bunch of Webpack plugins and things like that. Right. And it would include a bunch of best practices and stuff. So if I could ask a question, so and and I this is this is on a much smaller scale, um, but I'm just kind of keeping in mind as I'm listening to you talking uh, some of the monorepos that I uh, work in personally, and one of the the biggest most annoying things that I think you actually touched in with the build orchestration was if I have say 15 packages, 15 npm packages in this repo, and there's a web of dependencies between these packages. And I'm working on one package, and that's where my focus is. But I realize that I need to make a change in another package. Now, the minute I start straddling development on two packages, I have to remember, oh, yeah, I need to go run a build. I need to, whenever I change a source file in this other package, I need to run a build uh, in that package. Then I can come back. And, you know, oftentimes I will forget to do that. And then I'm like, why is this not working? And it's like, ah, I made the change in the source file. I need to compile the TypeScript and bundle it into an NPM package distribution so that I can consume it from the library that I'm actually working on. And so then what I find is, okay, now I'm making custom little hacks to do like file watching at the top of the thing, at the top of the, the repo that looks at all the packages and incrementally compiles them whenever there's a change detected. So how does Rush provide a solution to that? What, how, would, how would this build orchestration work? Is, it, is, is that a use case that it could solve? So the, the watch scenario uh, is definitely an important scenario. Mm-hmm. And like it, Rush itself today doesn't have a great solution for that. Basically, you run watch in the project that you're uh, actually serving. But so, mm -hmm. for example, it would be common that you have a front end web application and then you have various libraries that d it depends on. So today, what we do is you just run watch on the front end web application. And then when the libraries change, uh, you can use Rush to say, compile everything up to this project that I'm in right now, and it will detect which things have changed so it can skip the ones that don't have any changes. Mm -hmm. But for example, this is an area that we're very interested in. It hasn't been a top priority, I guess. Mm -hmm. One other interesting aspect of it is, so when we first developed Rush, it was just something I was doing on the side. I, I wrote the original prototype of it myself over Christmas vacation, I think. <laughs> and then it, it became something that we, you know, people were using, people got excited about, you know, more people 
started having feature requests. Eventually, uh, when I was at Microsoft, there was a whole team of people who started just managing the tooling for the mono repo. And when you have a lot of people, that's actually one of the selling points for the mono repo is the more developers that you get working together on one place, suddenly the more budget you have to have a team of people go and build really good tooling for it. So mm-hmm. it's not just like each repo has one guy who spends five hours a week putting out fires. It turns into like when I left, we had something like four or five people who were full-time just working on tools. And there was a ticketing system where if you got a weird build error or you know some tests were unstable, you could actually open a ticket and we had an on-call person who would investigate it. And then we collected statistics about how many tickets we got in different areas and did root cause analyses and stuff. I'm now at HBO, but HBO kind of has the same thing. They have dedicated tooling teams that work in the big you know, mono repo. And it's mm-hmm. really kind of good. But as far as Rush, it was never like a Microsoft product that they were selling or pitching. The website is a little bit like a, of a sales pitch, but I, I wrote most of it myself. I even did the artwork myself. So it's not <laughs> all that is to say that the development of features in Rush is a little bit slow because it's kind of a thing that people do on the side as things are motivated for them, right? It's mm-hmm. not like complete. And Rush Stack is sort of the same way. It's like we got this idea. We had been building random packages and tools uh, for a few years. And then it was a year or so ago, we started thinking, we keep putting all these things together in one mono repo on GitHub, but what do they really have to do with each other? And we came around to the idea that the real value of them is that they work together. And JavaScript in general is really into flexibility. Like I always tell people, you know, if you went and we're going to do a project in Java or C Sharp or something like that, you just install like the language like framework and you often get an editor with it. And then you're testing and linking and bundling and optimizer and linter. All those things just come out of the box and somebody has put the entire end to end system together for you and it just works. Whereas with JavaScript, it's like every step of the way, like there's two popular linters for TypeScript. You know, if you don't use TypeScript, there's Babel. Uh, If you do use TypeScript, you can use TypeScript and Babel together. If you want to run tests, well, there's Karma and Mocha and Jest. And even the test assertion library and the test runner can be like made by different people. We think of it almost as a vector where every single piece of it, like your linker is made by a different group from the compiler and you can choose between Rollup or Webpack for your linkers. Every step of the way, Uh, you have to make a decision. You have to read the blogs and find out what is popular and then make your bet and say, you know, oh, well, we like Jest because that seems to be popular today and that's what we're going to use. Well, we made bets like that like five years ago on Gulp, you know, and like things that aren't very popular now. But when you start doing large-scale development, once you make that bet, it's hard to change it because you have all this stuff that starts getting built up around it. So part of the idea of Rush Stack was let's have a bunch of people who are professional developers and who have experience doing tooling, make some bets and then decide on a set of stuff that uh, should work well together. And then we're going to collaborate together with our community from open source. And like, you know, I now work at a different company, but I still am very involved with it uh, and bring a different set of perspectives. But the spirit of it is we're all working together to try and over time build something up that is similar to what you get in other uh, languages. Is the idea then that Rush Stack is, has opinions about uh, how to lint, how to bundle, how to, to do all these things? Mm-hmm. And part of the opinion is, well, we don't have time to develop a bunch of different options for things. We just want something that works. We don't really want everybody to choose their own flavor of ice cream because we don't have time to do that. But there's another aspect of it, which is that when you lock in on something, you can make optimizations that aren't possible when there's an abstraction. And I can Mm -hmm. give some concrete examples of that. Like when we started with Gulp, the idea of Gulp was that you model tasks and then the tasks have dependencies between each other. So TSLint, which was the linter we were using at the time, was a task. And then TypeScript was a task. And the task was like this Gulp wrapper around the actual library of TypeScript and TSLint. And then you like wire them together. So first we run TypeScript, then we run TSLint. And the, the idea was you make these boxes and arrows, like a big data flow diagram of how each task gets its turn on the files. And the way things moved between the boxes were uh, streams of like files or partially processed file buffers. And we ran into problems with that because, for example, TSLint needs to do a TypeScript analysis. So it invokes the compiler engine. 
uh, to study the code and you know figure out what types are of things. But the TypeScript task does that too. So you really want the same compiler engine to perform the analysis once and then to share that intermediary state between TSLint and TypeScript. But it's hard to do that just with TSLint and TypeScript if you're just writing a simple program that invokes one after the other. Uh, you have to kind of go into some internal libraries a little bit if you want to wire that up. But then when it's behind a task abstraction, there isn't like a natural way to do that. Or another thing that will come up is like, well, some people, I don't know if we're still doing this today, but they would say, well, if the code doesn't compile, don't show me lint errors because, you know, maybe the code's not even valid. Let's first make sure that the compiling works correctly. And then if the compiling was successful, then show the lint errors. But I want to run the compiler and the linter simultaneously to save time. So I need to like save the error messages from the linter in a buffer until the compiler says it's successful, then I'll show those messages. So again, this is something that like breaks down this uh, idea of abstractions. And if we wanted to replace TSLint with ESLint, let's say, you end up with like the same problem again that I mentioned where you, know, well, you want ESLint's parser to share the same analysis as TypeScript. But the way that you hook those pieces together is going to be completely different because the entire architecture of ESLint is completely different. So all that's to say that when you make something pluggable, you make a lot of architectural sacrifices or you, you create the need to create this rich interface that can expose the real stuff that you need to interact with something in a you know, tight, you know, optimized way that's expensive. So with RushStack, we've taken the philosophy that we do want some things to be pluggable, but they should be conscious decisions of, you know, this is a part where there really is value in allowing different pieces to be swapped in here. And we've actually tested them and we've actually validated that the abstraction we set up makes sense and is workable. It's not like we just say, well, I did one thing and it's pluggable, so you can drop something else in there if you want, but it's a dice roll. You know, yeah. it's a, a, an exercise of the reader, whether it'll actually work or how much work is involved with that. So if I wanted to use RushStack, um, and I understand that it's in in development, and I'd like to talk both about what's coming in the form of, of RushStack and what you would be able to use maybe today. But let's 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 continue this talking about uh, RushStack for a minute here. So if I say I had a monorepo um, that had maybe let's say it's got ten npm packages. It's got a couple of like backend servers and a couple of UI like front end React apps. What would that look like in terms of the artifacts that Rush generated, or how I would how would how, how would I interface with that system? What would be my experience in terms of spinning everything up, working on you know a, an npm package, working on one of the backends, working on one of the front ends, so on and so forth? Yeah, so you would start by uh, converting the. Uh monorepo to use Rush as its build orchestrator. Uh, and there's like a Rush init command that will dump out config files for you. But we didn't put a lot of thought into the onboarding experience for a long time, because when you have a monorepo, you only set it up once, and then you never think again about the setup experience. And that was when we made Rush open source and then started trying to build a community about it around it, you know, um, and get people to use it and maybe contribute back to it. It took us a long time to realize that other people had a hard time setting up Rush at all, you know, because we never went through the experience of setting up Rush. We've been working in the same, you know, five mono repos, you know, for years. But when we went and did some investigation into that, what we found is that we like the idea of having these big config files that have JSON schemas that make sure you have IntelliSense and error checking when you're editing them, and they have big blocks of comments around everything. So you run Rush in it, and it just dumps these big empty config files with comments, and then you go uncomment the parts that you want and add your stuff. And we try to put uh, as much uh, parameterization of Rush in config files versus like command line options or environment variables or other places where it's there's less rails or guidance of what you're supposed to do to, to set it up. So anyway, that would be the first thing you would do is generate the config files and then go register all of your projects uh, so that Rush um, builds them. You probably would run into a little bit of work that you have to do just to get it to build with Rush because Rush's way of installing NPM packages is a little bit different. Like we mainly use the PNPM package manager. This is another really interesting area of uh, JavaScript is they have like three or you could say four leading package managers, right? There's NPM, the original one. Then there's Yarn Classic, which is a ground up rewrite of NPM that adds workspaces and some new features, but keeps the same models NPM. Then there's PNPM, 
which came along and solves a technical problem with the way NPM installs stuff. We refer to it as doppelgangers and uh, phantom dependencies on the Resh website. Maybe you could, this is actually, this was a very interesting point. Could we take a detour here to talk about phantom dependencies and doppelgangers? Because it's something that's unique, I think, to the JavaScript ecosystem, which I hadn't encountered before working in other languages. <laughs> could you could you just unpack that just a little bit? I know it's, we could talk, we could spend half an hour talking uh, <laughs> talking about. Let me finish my list of package managers and for a minute. <laughs> Then I'll, I'll, I can dive into that. So I said there was the original NPM, then there's Yarn Classic, then there's PNPM, which actually changes the installation model, but using symlinks. So it, it solves some problems that we'll talk about in a minute by creating a whole bunch of symlinks in your node modules folder. And it is a correct installation that eliminates those problems. And it's mostly backwards compatible because it still preserves the original Node.js like module resolver model. And then there's Yarn Plug and Play, which is a new, it's essentially a completely different installation strategy from the original Yarn. But its approach is that it changes the way Node.js resolves packages, you know, through this plugin. And then it's cleaner. It doesn't have to create symlinks at all. It doesn't even have to create node modules folders. It's more like how Ruby gems, for example, work. Um, Mm. But it has more compatibility issues because there's a whole lot of code that assumes it's going to go walking through node modules folders looking for things. Uh, it can be like stuff like Webpack. It can be just people's random packages that go and resolve things. But we encountered some compatibility issue. We feel like Yarn plug and play is like the future. It's like a better design, but it could take a while, you know, before a lot of people will be able to move to that. But so you've got those. And then there's Rush, which predated most of them. Like Rush was designed around the original NPM package manager. So it introduced its own sim linking strategy that is somewhat similar to what PNPM does today. Mm. And then, uh, even now today, when you use Rush with PNPM, it's actually Rush's symlinks retrofitted onto PNPM's model. And we have a PR that's been open for like a month now that actually finally lets PNPM completely manage the installation when you're using it uh, and gets Rush out of the business of package management, which we're really excited about because it, <laughs> it's a complicated problem. And we have had like just tons of work that we've done over the years to support that and make it work correctly. But let's let's rewind a little bit and talk about why all that exists because it is another big big aspect of like working in a large scale repo. So I understood reading from the documentation that Rush will or will not work with other package managers besides PNPM. So it supports NPM and Yarn Classic. The support is not great because almost none of the Rush developers or main users actually use those. Pretty much everybody's using PNPM. Mm-hmm. We've been wanting to improve the support for the other package managers, but our uh, plan to do that is to basically let them just do the installation. So right now, for example, when you use Yarn, like Russia's original strategy was it looks at all the projects in your mono repo and then it creates this fake project that has the dependencies on the superset of all of your mono repo dependencies. And then it runs the package manager once to install that folder. And then it goes and creates symlinks for each project into that centralized folder. Mm-hmm. And there's some technical reasons why that is, is like a good strategy. But when you do that with NPM and Yarn, every time that they change things or release a new version that changes some semantics, some aspects of that can break and then you have to go debug it. So it works with, I can say it works with the version of NPM and Yarn at the time when we um, you know, were last using that, but uh, it's had like problems where there's bit rot over the years. And so the the long-term strategy would be to do the same thing we're doing with PNPM. Hopefully we'll do it this summer, but say, well, if you want to use Yarn with Rush, then Yarn just installs the way Yarn installs and you get all the other Rush features, but Yarn manages the installation. And that means you lose the phantom and doppelganger solutions that Rush was doing. But the idea is, well, maybe you didn't want that. That's the reason you're using Yarn is because you want Yarn's installation model. Mm -hmm. I see. So it really is, for example... One of the things that I was wondering is what's the overlap between, say, using Yarn workspaces with Rush and and kind of what I'm hearing is that it really is these are you're choosing one or the other, because that's kind of what when you're working with Yarn workspaces, you've got some virtual package that aggregates all of the the packages and stores at least some of the dependencies in in one place. and, And Rush is doing the same thing. Let's get a little more technical about versions. <laughs> so NPM has two, I guess I could say two big factors that got us into the space to begin with. One of them is uh, you just have way more packages than usual. 
So for example, if you use, uh, I don't know, C-sharp, which I've used before, it would be common that you have 20 libraries, right, that you install that are like DLLs or something that you get from open source or you buy them from a commercial company and that's your dependencies. Whereas with the standard Node.js project, notoriously, you can have typically more than a thousand like NPM packages getting installed just to do some basic stuff like, you know, build an application, you know, and not do anything particularly weird. They just have a approach of having lots and lots of small projects that all have dependencies on each other. So out of the gate, NPM has uh, a lot more complex version management issues than languages that have, you know, less libraries that tend to be bigger, more monolithic libraries, like the .NET framework, for example. Just when you go to use C Sharp, you get this massive library that comes from Microsoft that solves a whole bunch of problems that with NPM, each one would be solved by some individual package. But then there's another aspect, which is the way that NPM installs packages uh, is, I I always have to be careful talking about this, but it's it's flawed. So um, like when you have packages that depend on other packages, they form what's called in computer science, a directed acyclic graph. Basically, it's like a tree that branches apart, but then can come back together again. But the installation strategy of the node modules folder is that we're going to use folders on disk to represent the dependencies between packages. So if A depends on B, C, and D, those become subfolders of it. And then when you have a diamond dependency, you run into this problem that the file system on a computer actually um, is a tree. It's not a directed acyclic graph. You need symlinks to make it into a directed acyclic graph. So there's a whole write-up on the Rush website yeah. that tries to give examples under the technical details. It really isn't NPM's fault. This was, It's actually kind of the original sin was committed by Node in the, the way that it requires modules, right? Like that's where it actually happens? I think they were developed oh, okay. together. I, I actually, I'm not, I shouldn't speak about it because I, I wasn't there. I don't know the original history of how, how Node.js and NPM came together and agreed on how they're going to interoperate with each other. But if you look at it, at the time, it was probably completely sufficient for the problems they were solving. And like Bower, the thing that they were competing with, doesn't allow libraries to depend on libraries at all. So it was kind of an innovation that you could have these big dependencies of things. But basically, it introduces certain problems. Like the phantom dependency is the most obvious problem, which is they do this thing called hoisting, where if several things all depend on a package, they move it up to the top. And then if you can't find the thing you're looking for in a subfolder, you just walk up the tree and find it somewhere higher in the tree. And that creates this phantom problem, which is that a package can require things that it didn't declare a dependency on. So it doesn't appear in your package, Jason, but it is findable somewhere in the node modules folder. So Node.js doesn't even look at package JSON files when it's resolving. It doesn't look at dependency declarations when Mm -hmm. it's searching for things. So you can require things that you never declared. uh, And that can cause problems because... A lot of times the thing will be there because of some Mm. aspect, right? It's like, well, I depend on this other package and it depends on something. So generally I can require that thing and have a somewhat good guarantee that it's going to be there. And I might never, never even notice the problem, but I don't have any say about what the version of it is because I never declared it. And it can get disturbed because if the package manager chooses to install things differently then the version or the thing that I was expecting might not be there or it might be the wrong version. And then doppelgangers are an even more interesting case, which is when you have a diamond dependency. So like, I'll try to make it concrete. I can't think of good package names off the top of my head, but it's like A depends on B, which depends on this this like D library that's our diamond. And then A also depends on C, which depends on D. You can get a case where B and C need two different versions of D and NPM's models that they uh, like install mm-hmm. the package twice. So you can get multiple copies of it. And because of the tree, there are situations where you can actually end up installing five copies of the same version of the same library. So it's not even just that we have side-by-side versions. It's like the same version has to be installed in multiple folders because there is, without a symlink, there's no way to make like the folders mm-hmm. end up being in this. Whereas in other languages, you would get an error at build time saying, hey, I cannot find, I cannot find a single version of this library that satisfies the dependencies of this project. And you have to deal with it manually at the at build time. Well, or they would say um, Ruby, for example, would just install that version in one place. And then the way you find it is when you require a library, like the resolver just looks in your dependencies and says, oh, you need, you know, version 1.2.3. Okay, I'm going to go look in that folder for it. But with NPM, it's like, well, the only places I can look at it or look for it are in certain places that don't know what a version is. Mm. 
it means that the package manager has to copy the same version into different folders in your, I see. your tree. But if you think about it, like say I have a singleton, right? Then now I have two singletons getting spun up because Node.js doesn't actually understand that these two folders have the same library in them. It sees it as two entire instances of it. Where the TypeScript compiler, we had a longstanding compiler error that we were dealing with when we first set up uh, Rush Mono repos, which is the TypeScript compiler would see a declaration of a class in two places and it would assume that they were not compatible declarations, right? Um, it has the same name, but it's a completely different copy of it. And we eventually got them to relax the rules a little bit and say, well, if it's in another package that has the same name as this package and the paths relatively within there are the same, then you can reasonably assume that it's the same thing and then disable your check there. Um, and it took like a year to get that finally fixed. So this is like one aspect of the problems that's like really obvious, but there's another aspect, which is just the management of versions is complicated. NPM has this thing called peer dependencies. So in a mono repo, like I personally have probably spent months of my life just helping people sort through problems of I'm trying to upgrade this package and now my installation fails or I upgraded a package and now the like application doesn't run because something got jostled around in the node modules folder and now the versions aren't exactly right. And when you go into a mono repo, the problems really multiply. In a small repo, which is where the vast majority of NPM users work, you just don't have enough different people trying to install different versions of things to really hit these problems. But as more and more people come in, you know, like the Rush Stack repo has uh, something like 10 versions of the TypeScript compiler getting installed for various reasons, you know, and then there are things that have peer dependencies in the TypeScript compiler. So you get like sort of complicated version problems. And that's where Rush's uh, features came up, right? It, it has um, special protections against phantom dependencies and doppelgangers. It has weird concepts like preferred versions and allowed alternative versions and special checks to make sure that the versions are in sync and you can, you know, you can have rush check things for you. So it's just an area that uh, we became really interested in because we had a lot of frustration supporting it. And we, you know, at a big company, when you're shipping production software to the cloud where releases go out, you know, every week, you really need things to be deterministic and reliable. So we put a lot of engineering and thought into that. Whereas a lot of other people are like, what's wrong with it? You know, it works fine for me. I don't, I don't understand what you're, you know, just if it's a problem, you know, go hack something into your package JSON file, you know. We weirdly over and over again had conversations with people who couldn't understand what we were trying to solve or why Rush was preventing them from requiring something that, you know, they could see there in their node modules folder. And the, oh, I'll mention one other case that this came up, which is when you have multiple mono repos. People are always wanting to like create more mono repos and then they're like, well, it's a great separation. You have all of your libraries in one mono repo and then your app in the other mono repo. And then you just automatically publish things and automatically upgrade in the downstream repo. So you you advocate, are you kind of just mono repo all the way? Just keep doubling down on one code base and just add, it's always better uh, if you've got a huge block of code to add it to the, the existing repo? Well, I would say technically it's easier to manage when it's in one place because you can do things like uh, a pull request that updates, you know, 200 projects easily at once without having to worry about publishing and upgrading stuff. But there are political reasons why you would want things separated, right? For example, at Microsoft, we had a internal repo that was closed source and then an open source mm -hmm. repo on GitHub that was open source. So at the very beginning, out of the gate, our tool chain had to be in a different repo from the application development. So that's like a valid case where there can be business groups that really are separate from each other. To me, one of the like real rubrics that you can use is about the contract. So if you have a, like take React, for example, there's a group of developers that make React and they ship it, they document it, they have like release notes when they release a major new version, they make sure that, you know, they test the contracts for it. So they're shipping a contract for people to consume and, and there's a group of people around making sure that that contract is stable and well supported. That kind of boundary totally makes sense to have it within its own repo. The thing that really didn't work for us was the sharing code where we're not really shipping it. It's more like we're sharing it. So there's some URL parser that somebody makes and then another team wants to use it. And some other teams have some libraries. So various teams start putting code into different libraries into some shared repo that they're going to consume, but nobody really owns it. And you get this problem where somebody goes and makes a change to the thing they're using, but they're not going to go and test the other downstream repos, right? So then when the downstream repos upgraded, they might get broken by that change. 
And then it's like, well, whose responsibility is it? Should That guy should have tested everybody else or these people just need to pay this cost. And we had teams when we were working in this model where it was like every week, somebody would have to go spend like their afternoon getting, you know, the upgrade to compile again because the upstream repo that they were consuming packages from just kept constantly having churn and changes because at a company, it's not like NPM where somebody just kind of makes a library and once in a while they update it. It's like there are people actively changing stuff every day because they're trying to get a feature shipped. And these aren't just really isolated libraries. They're all parts of the anatomy of like a big application, you know, so um, there's a lot more churn. And we tried, oh, well, let's have it automatically upgrade. Let's make it so that when somebody goes and makes a change, we run tests in the other repos and tell them that it's broken. Or a, a really common one is let's make people review the contracts. Everybody needs to follow Semver and they need to like design their APIs to be, you know, forwards thinking and stuff. But all those things that you you look at, you're like, well, React did that. Let's impose that on our developers working in this shared repo. The problem is that there's no budget for that. Like nobody's manager is going to let them go spend, you know, a day, you know, having a meeting and deliberating about a design change to some URL parser because that's just not the business that they're in. And nobody really thinks of that as a shipping thing. So if you don't solve that problem, what you end up is people just stop sharing code. It's like easier just to fork the library and have our own version of it and stop trying to share with the other team. So the monorepo really does solve that problem because it lets everybody work together on a shared library. And if you make a change to it, you can't merge your change unless all the unit tests pass for all the things that are affected by it. And when stuff fails, you can easily just go fix that stuff up in the same PR that introduces the breaking change. That is a really, really interesting point. Never thought of it that way. So, so back to the back to the question of you know getting set up, getting started with Rust.js for this hypothetical mono repo that we have. Ten npm packages that are written in TypeScript. Maybe some are written in JavaScript. Some are written in TypeScript, uh, and then a back end and a front end. So what's the what's the next step for getting the build orchestration going? Okay. Rush kind of checks out at the point where we need to build a project. At that point, it just runs an NPM script in that folder. Uh, and then it's up to your tool chain to figure out how to build the, like the project. And you can have different tool chains in each project folder. Rush actually discourages you from having any global stuff. So for example, our ESLint rules, we don't have like an ESLint RC file at the root of the repo. Each individual project has its own lint uh, set up. And you could even be running different versions of Lint in different project folders, uh, which sounds like not good. But when you have like hundreds of projects, sometimes not all the teams can upgrade ESLint at the same time. So you need to let people be able to have you mm-hmm. know, differences in their tool chains locally. Prettier, we did decide with Prettier to run that globally because it's it's more of a cosmetic thing. It doesn't have a lot of breaking changes. And it's something that kind of needs to run on the diff of what you've changed when you have like a git commit hook. But other than the one exception of prettier, we pretty much have the tool chain be self-contained for each individual folder. I thought one of the, the the selling points also was, you know, incremental building and, you know, shaving build times off of that. So how can you do that by having each kind of package contained inside the repo being responsible for managing its own build? Well, the tool chain's shared, right? So the first thing that you would do in Rush is make a, a tool chain project. So a project that actually um, is the code that compiles things. And we usually put shared configuration in there, like your TS config for web applications or your TS config for node applications. With ESLint, I went through a whole thing when we switched from TSLint to ESLint, where ESLint actually doesn't have the ability to load plugins from a shared configuration folder. It tries to load the plugins from the actual project folder. So we have this like workaround that we made and we're, we have an open PR. We're trying to get ESLint to have better support for mono repos. But basically you want to move, you want each project to just have a dependency on, we actually call it the rig. So the idea is the tool chain is like the shared code that, you know, is reusable scripts for invoking the TypeScript compiler or Webpack or whatever. But then the rig is like a flavor. So you would have a rig for um, a web library or a a rig for a web application or for a tooling application, um, things like that. So these stereotypical kinds of projects usually get a specific like a tool chain package that has all that stuff rolled up in one bundle. So that you just kind of, you want to have as little copying and pasting of boilerplate between projects as possible. Let's say I had some rig then for compiling TypeScript NPM packages. How Mm -hmm. would I, for example, 
uh, I don't know, use the same, you know, cache the the TypeScript assets or keep like a TypeScript compiler hot. So, you know, that uh, with, with, I don't know, like the syntax tree parsed or something like this is one of the things I noticed in the bills, like TypeScript takes a long time to compile. That's true. And if there was some way that, you know, when a tiny source file changes, you could run a command and it would just compile that one file and, you know, put it in the disk directory. Is that just, I need to do that myself uh, and I can benefit from having this single rig that's in a single place so that any project that's going to be using that can benefit from it, which I think is good. But is there also, does, does Rush provide some sort of solution out of the box or sort of maybe some building blocks that I can build that type of solution out of the box? So Rush doesn't. And for a long time, Rush stack didn't either because we were using Gulp and we really, Gulp, as I mentioned, it's it's kind of an older, less popular solution now. Uh, and it, the whole way approach that we took with Gulp, we regretted and we kind of wanted to rethink for many years, but it worked. And it was like a component of, of our setup that worked reliably. So we just were using the same Gulp tool chain for years and years. But uh, recently, I'm now at HBO, but recently now Microsoft has been developing a new modernized replacement for that that's called Heft. Uh, and they're in the process of uh, releasing, like moving that code in. They had done an internal prototype of it and they're now, they just opened the first PR this week to start uh, releasing that as open source. But that would be like a tool chain that um, is more modern that actually gives you a out of box way to invoke the TypeScript compiler. You, you can also do it in a simple way. Like the TS doc project is a s- small mono repo with like four or five projects that just uses bare bones scripts that just invoke TypeScript and then invoke lint and in one folder it invokes Webpack. So it's like the mo- if you were looking for an example of the most minimal way to use Rush to build something without like a shared tool chain, that's like an extreme example. But to come back to your, you're, you're also asking an architectural question, right? Like how do you do efficient TypeScript compilation while still treating each individual project as being a self-contained process, mm-hmm. which I'll mention is also important when you start sharding builds across machines, because uh, that like common context, like the TypeScript compiler recently introduced a feature where it also kind of acts as a build orchestrator. You register all the projects in your mono repo in the centralized tsconfig file, and then TypeScript will go and figure out the order to build things and watch everything in your repo. And it's really cool technology, but I'm not sure that it would actually work for our scenario because when you have hundreds of projects and some of those projects use different versions of the TypeScript compiler and you have other tasks like preprocessors or postprocessors that run before and after the TypeScript compiler step, that's been a constant thought in the back of my mind is how would you use this feature of the TypeScript compiler? So the approach that we've been taking is just making the builds in the individual folders as efficient as possible. So as I said, Rush won't even spin up the tool chain if it can see that the uh, source files haven't changed since the last time it was run. It has like a um, efficient hash of each of the source files, if you changed it or not. But within that, if we do decide we're going to run the compiler, the latest TypeScript compiler has on disk caching. So you still have to spin up the node process but the actual state from before is not entirely lost. And we've talked about, I've for the longest time been wanting to do this like cool optimization where we would have a service. So when, when you use like VS Code, for example, there's this language service that runs in the background. It's basically a long running TypeScript server. And then you hand source files to it and then it gives you back like um, analyses of them. I guess one thing I wanted to ask, um, this is maybe a, a bit further back before the TypeScript tooling uh, happened, but do you think Rush has a certain limit on how big of a project it should be used on? Because uh, it, it was designed for big projects and it's really focused on that. Would you suggest like a project of three people, five packages, or do you think there's a limit to when it really starts to come into its own? You're saying a minimum threshold where it wouldn't be worth using Rush for something smaller than a certain scale? Right, yeah. But does that exist or is it good for everything? I mean, I use it for small projects, but maybe it's just because I'm into Rush and like using it. So it's just, I like using familiar technology. We have made it somewhat easy to set up. So it's not like anywhere near as uh, intimidating as it was in the past just to get off the ground with it. But uh, its focus, I would say, is for larger scenarios, I guess, like where build times matter. And there's some benefits you get from breaking the rules in a small project. I'd say if, for example, if you only have five projects, it might not even make sense 
to make them into separate projects. Maybe it would be easier to initially develop them as a monolith. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Are you able to pull out any of the main pieces of Rush to use in like a non-Rush project? Like the like the way you um, you look for fan of dependencies or the incremental builds, are, can you pull those out as a library and maybe use part of that in a non-Rush project? Or is it mostly use it all together as a framework? So like the incremental builds uh, rely on this package depths hash library that we maintain. So that part would be usable in isolation. Like the command line parser for Rush is pulled. Like a lot of Rush stack is actually libraries that Rush itself uses. So those pieces are reusable. Another cool feature of Rush is when you're doing a bunch of parallel builds, it doesn't mix together. It shows you real-time output of like the logs as your builds are running, but it does not mix together the output from different sub-processes. So for example, it will pick whatever the first thing is that started and show you the real-time output from that project altogether as one contiguous thing. And then when that project completes, it will take any other projects that built in the background and dump their complete output and then pick the next thing that's still running and give you real-time output from that. So it gives you like a real-time you know, feed of what's happening as your projects are building, but without intermixing logging lines from different projects and having to put prefixes on the lines. So that technology, again, is in a package that you could use you know, for some other project. It's not built into Rush. Some of the more uh, scenario-specific stuff is kind of all in one big thing that's hard to untangle, um, like publishing and change log management uh, and versioning. Those things are fairly closely welded together. And uh, we have a deploy feature that we added recently that goes and starting from a project, will find all of its dependencies and then deploy just the subset of this project and its non-dev dependencies, you know, for Docker or for a Node.js, you know, web server. That again is kind of not really carved out because it makes some assumptions about how rush projects work and how um, the linking strategy works. So these more sophisticated things, just by virtue of the fact that they have to be more integrated, it's it's harder to make them reusable. And we really don't lean towards doing that because our focus is to make them work really well, not to make this palette of random components that you know you could mix together in different ways. Because I feel like the JavaScript community already provides that like very well. Yeah, that's definitely true. The number of options in the JavaScript community is is huge, and that's one one thing I was wondering if Rush kind of opens up its libraries because you notice everyone does the same thing in the Mono Repo world um, over and over again, and it's it'd just be nice if we could have some reuse um, from the established projects. So not everyone is building a console log output every time, <laughs> for example. Right. Yep. <laughs> what about the inverse case where we've let's say hypothetically adopted Rush? Can you? incrementally adopt the individual capabilities of Rush as you're using it? Like, so you you alluded to a publishing capability and a deployment capability. I'm assuming if I, you know, want to use Rush to build my packages, I can still use my old mechanism to publish them? Yeah. Yep. Okay. As long as it understands, like the Rush projects really are modeled as standalone NPM projects. And subject to some issues with versioning, you could actually just go into a random folder and run NPM install and NPM run build or whatever in that folder, and it should more or less work. The, the main reason we did that was actually to facilitate moving projects between mono repos. So when you have multiple mono repos, you do reorganization or trying to consolidate things. So we really wanted projects not to be intertwined at all with anything else in their mono repo and to really act as self-contained units, mm. you know, that could be moved around easily. So that in some ways makes it easier for other tools to interoperate. There are some limitations to that, like a lot of tools, for example, try to walk up to the mo- root of the mono repo and find a package JSON file there and expect to find node modules there and stuff. Uh, that stuff doesn't work. And it sounds like you're saying that's that's kind of a bad idea. We think so. For example, if you put a node modules folder in the root of your mono repo, that introduces a phantom dependency problem because Node.js can resolve things from there. So all of a sudden you, once again, can import things that uh, weren't declared in your local project because they've been accidentally hoisted yeah. to the root of the repo. I find that happens to me all the time. I forget to include a dependency. And so when I'm running my tests or I'm writing applications that reside inside the mono repo, it's fine and everything works. And then the minute someone installs the package from NPM, where into a context that is not the mono repo at all, everything breaks because yeah. that package isn't there because I just forgot to declare it. And the original team that built Rush was shipping an a SDK to paid enterprise customers. So those breaks were um, really, uh, you know, they were like paid escalations, you know, or incidents. 
when that happened. So like API extractor is something we could talk about another day, but it's also all about carefully controlling contracts for packages and making sure that you never accidentally break something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, uh, that phantom dep- uh, dependency is actually one of the biggest issues I found working with Yarn workspaces. When you're working, especially with a team that might not know the ins and outs of monorepos, accidentally installing something globally, forgetting to add it to your package dependencies, having everything work, all your tests work, hmm. then you publish and everything breaks. It's probably the thing that I've seen like sure. the most as far as, as what can break a package. So I, I've mm-hmm. been working on a, a product on like my own just to solve that, it's like run through dependencies and find out, are you asking for something that you aren't including in your package dependency? Because it's so common. I believe that there are lint rules. I, I think there's some lint rules that might check for that. So there's some options. The, the most insidious form of it actually isn't that uh, it's broken and it can't find the module. It's that it finds an unconstrained version of it. So it will sort of seem to work. And you, we would get these cases where for 90% of the customers or people who are using the consumers, let's say, who are using the package, it does work because their like, tree ends up in the same format as ours. But then there's like 5% of people who actually have like side-by-side versions or certain more complicated things happening in their case. And for them, it doesn't work. And then they're like opening issues saying, when I install your package, I get this really weird error because it's basically getting the wrong version of one of its dependencies somewhere deep in the tree. And we're like, well, it doesn't repro for me. It doesn't seem to repro for anybody else. It must be something with your computer. Did you, did you try turning it off and back on again? You know, And it takes a long time to like finally fix it. I'm a very analytical person who fixates on like you know, obscure technical things that might be a problem. <laughs> so for me, I, I've always been on this band, bandwagon, but it's one of the hardest, NPM versioning is one of the hardest things that we've dealt with in terms of messaging, because people assume that the mo- the default model works fine because it works okay for them. And they like assume that the problem's fundamentally simple because if everybody just follows Semver, then everything will be fine. And to explain why like phantom dependencies and hoisting are problematic. It's like very hard to explain it because, you know, they're, they're like, yeah, yeah, I hear you saying all this crazy technical stuff and drawing diagrams and stuff, but you're, you're not understanding. You just need to follow Semver. <laughs> I've never had any problems with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely not that simple. All right. Well, thank you so much, Pete, Shane, for, for coming by today. We will post, of course, uh, the links to, to Rush.js where you can read up on all the stuff that we've been talking about on monorepos, on doppelgangers and phantom dependencies and make, you know, just NPM versioning in general uh, on the website. And we can continue the conversation on Twitter. Thanks so much for coming by. I've definitely had my eyes opened uh, in the last year, I would say, to working with monorepos. It does come with its challenges. But overall, I think it's a net positive in terms of the problems that they solve. So go check out Rush. Go work with monorepos uh, and be happy. Bye, everybody. Well, thank you for listening. If you or someone you know has something to say about building user interfaces that simply must be heard, please get in touch with us. We can be found on Twitter at at the frontside or over just plain old email at contact at frontside.io. Thanks and see you next time.